Hi, we're the ladies of LifeSite, and we're so glad you're here. We're ladies simply navigating the challenges and triumphs of this modern culture as moms, wives, sisters, and daughters. Join us each week as we discuss the raw questions and situations that we face every day from our unique perspectives. So grab your cup of coffee, tea, or beverage of choice, and let's dive into this week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Rebecca, and this is our first quote-unquote special episode of Ladies of LifeSite. That's right, you get two episodes this week, and here's why. We had a great email conversation with Pamela Acker about some research she's been doing related to the topic of the COVID shot and the shedding or transmission information that's kind of been circulating in the recent weeks. Since we value Pamela's hard work and research, as soon as she sent over that email, I said, let's have you hop on Ladies of LifeSite. So she was quick to say yes, and just like the episode we just posted with Dr. Brian Artis, I wanted to come in here and give the quick reminder that this COVID vaccine is still super new. There's a lot we don't know, but Maddie and I and the rest of the ladies of LifeSite felt that this was absolutely perfect. We would be able to give you kind of all of the information that we're learning about internally and just share it with you so that you can hopefully feel more empowered to make an informed decision about your day-to-day. So if you haven't yet listened to Monday's episode with Dr. Artis, I would just encourage you to take a listen to that one as well as this one with Pamela Acker. And without any more chatter from me, let's dig into this great conversation with Pamela Acker. Thanks for being here with us, Pamela. You're welcome. The last time Pamela joined us, she spoke about aborted fetal cells and their connection to vaccines. And today she's going to be talking about a few things connected specifically to the COVID vaccine. There are many statements coming out about the COVID vaccine kind of shedding or the transmission that's occurring and kind of some justification based off of like a Pfizer document that's been released, as well as some other hypotheses in terms of what's going on. And much like I said before our last episode where we talked with Dr. Artis, there's just a lot of information that we're not we're not sure of. But I also think that some of what Pamela has been sharing with us and some of the conversations that we've, we've had via email, she's got some really great points. So that's why we wanted to bring her on and kind of get her side of things and what she's been researching and studying about this. So I'd love to dive into that just right now. Kind of tell me a little bit about what you've been researching, Pamela, with all of this connected to vaccine shedding or transmission, as as some are calling it. So let's dive in there. I became aware of this idea of vaccine shedding through a video that was posted by Dr. Larry Polepsky, who's one of the folks who's, whose name gets trotted out, I think, quite a bit in terms of people who are opposing the COVID vaccine on on grounds of safety. And I think there's definitely a lot of safety grounds on which to oppose the COVID vaccine. So I took a look at it and then he and four other doctors, so five total, released a video fairly recently where they all sort of hypothesized about what what we might be seeing and what might be going on. And they were they were basing this on supposed supposed thousands of reports of particularly of women experiencing some kind of disruption to their cycle and or miscarriages that were associated with being around people who were vaccinated. So the idea that they were positing was that somehow something about 
the vaccine that is present in the bodies of vaccinated individuals is passing on to unvaccinated individuals. And this is a concept that's not unfamiliar if to people who've sort of studied a lot about vaccines and possible safety risks, because there is a concept called vaccine shedding, which involves the transmission of a live virus vaccine from one one individual to another. So this happens with chickenpox vaccine fairly frequently, as well as measles vaccine. The measles, mumps, and rubella vaccines are all live viral vaccines. And individuals who are vaccinated, particularly children who are vaccinated, because this is the age group that, that receives those vaccines, can actually pass what's called atypical measles or um, chickenpox, particularly along to classmates or other people that they spend, you know, tremendous amount of significant amount of time in contact with, they can pass these these viral infections along to those individuals. And it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. And actually, so, some people who are supportive of vaccines and vaccine safety will say that, you know, this isn't a thing and it doesn't happen. But I recently read a document that was released sometime back. And this is also making the rounds and people are saying, look, you know, these organizations, I think it was Johns Hopkins that published this document are saying that they're they're working on self-spreading vaccines. And so that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing a self-spreading vaccine. And this document specifically points out that, you know, in order to be self-spreading, the vaccine would have to be a live viral vaccine. And so the two vaccines we're currently, de- well, three vaccines we're currently dealing with in the U.S., the Pfizer and Moderna are both mRNA vaccines. And the Johnson & Johnson is an adenoviral vector vaccine. And so that one it tends to be a little bit more complicated to explain, I think. But it's they've, they've taken basically the outer shell of an adenovirus, which is a virus that commonly infects human beings. And they have um, emptied that shell of the normal adenovirus genetic information. And they've placed in that shell the genetic information for the spike protein. So it's sort of like an upgraded version of the mRNA vaccine. So instead of delivering the genetic information in a lipid nanoparticle, they're delivering it in a virus particle or a virus-like particle because it's it's actually what's called replication incompetent. And so it cannot actually reproduce itself in the body. And because of the nature of these two vaccines, the idea that something could be shedding seemed to me to be suspect. So that sort of lays the the basic, you know, groundwork of the terrain there. And, and uh, I kind of want to kick it back to you because I know you had some specific questions that you wanted to go into in terms of like what what's actually going on, what's actually, you know, are there risks to people who are not vaccinated, particularly women in the area of reproductive health. So I'm going to let your let your question kind of guide my answer here, because I could go on for hours, <laughs> um, but I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. So just really fast before we dive go, head in that direction, because I really do want to go in that direction. But I found it interesting, Pamela, and I don't know if you have any additional insight into this, but the two vaccines that you mentioned that have shedding or transmission or whatever the proper term may be, are two vaccines that both contain aborted fetal cells. Do you know if there's any link between that, the presence of the aborted fetal cells and this kind of shedding in those in the chickenpox and the MMR vaccine? No, I don't think so. Certainly this is nothing I've ever come across and, and I don't, there's not like an immediate sort of plausible, plausible biological mechanism that would that would lead to that being the case. Because what, what makes them able to shed is the live virus particles that they contain. And the reason that they're, they contain aborted fetal DNA fragments is because those viruses are actually grown in aborted fetal cells. And so 
that I don't think there's anything about the fetal cells themselves that would cause the virus to be transmissible because the oral polio, which is also live virus, can also be transmitted. So it's just, it's a phenomenon that's common to live viral vaccines and does, I don't think necessarily is related to the aborted fetal cells. Thanks for uh, for clarifying. I was just, I was really curious. Yeah, no, that's a very legitimate question. In situations like this, I feel like the, you know, moniker question everything is probably legitimate. <laughs> Well, thank you. Reba, did you, I'll, I'll kick it back to you then to kind of dive in on the real meat of our topic for today. Yeah. So, you know, like you mentioned, Pamela, you, you mentioned, you know, that, that there's, there's some of these concerns specifically related to reproductive health in women. I also know there's been some reports and, and like testimonies or stories of even some like testicular swelling in, in males. And so there's some of that concern that has been uh, talked about and kind of floated about. And I know you had done some research into kind of that core of, you know, the VAERS reports and some of these reporting mechanisms for these unvaccinated that are kind of experiencing what they're relating to shedding or transmission. So can you kind of speak to to that and kind of what you've discovered in your research and, and your thoughts on that? The numbers on these are, are very interesting because what I've been able to find is websites that are, are reporting to compile these instances of adverse reactions among un unvaccinated people who just spend time around vaccinated people. And there are dozens of reports, but then this gets magnified in, in these sort of videos that go viral to thousands of reports. And then somebody sent me one yesterday that said hundreds of thousands of reports. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where we got hundreds of thousands from, from this handful of Instagram screenshots. And the, the websites that I'm coming across that are purporting to sort of collate these stories are, are problematic for a couple of reasons. You know, they, 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 the two websites that I was um, looking primarily at seem to be mostly duplicates of one another and even have duplicated stories with within the each individual website. Sometimes, you know, the same story just, just posted twice in a row. So if you just went and counted the images, you'd say there are about 200, you know, reports. But when you start reading what's what's in the actual event reports that these people are, are compiling, it, it starts to sound a lot less frightening. And so there's there's a couple of things going on, and I'm going to start with the miscarriage one because I know that that's, that's the one that I think most people are worried about. And so anecdotes are obviously not something we want to dismiss because usually an anecdote is the first sign of a problem, but there's some problems with these anecdotal reports of miscarriage. And in particular, what I was seeing and kind of kept seeing repeatedly was somebody reporting something you know, like the following. So, you know, I, I went to my, my parents' house and they were both vaccinated and I was sitting down to have dinner with them. And in the middle of dinner, I started having heavy bleeding and I miscarried my baby. That the a connection between exposure to the vaccinated individual and miscarriage in this case is extremely untenable. So if, if you're going to miscarry from some kind of environmental insult, you won't miscarry immediately unless you're in a, a car wreck or, or you fall down the stairs. You have some, something that, that delivers a violent impact to the baby. If you have some kind of chemical or toxic or immunological or protein response, this does not happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen while you're exposed to the individual. It doesn't even happen the day after you're exposed to the individual. In these cases, usually the baby dies and, and the, the mother's body recognizes that on a biochemical level and begins the miscarriage 
you know, significantly later, up to several weeks later. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, positing that the, the HEK293 cells came from a spontaneous miscarriage instead of coming from an elective abortion is is so untenable. We You can't really get, you know, as I've said, I think many times you can't get a live cell line from dead tissue. And so you can't, generally speaking, get a a live tissue sample from a spontaneously miscarried baby again you'd have to have some kind of like you know the mother was just in a car accident or just fell down the stairs or something like that you wouldn't have i i literally just walked into my vaccinated parents house and now i'm miscarrying or yesterday i hugged a vaccinated family member and today i'm miscarrying those those things are not connected and you know unfortunately i think there's a strong desire when you have a miscarriage to understand why it happened and there's a huge temptation here to to place the blame on something that we know already know is dangerous. We know the COVID vaccination is it's experimental. We don't know, you know, what exactly is associated with it in terms of risks. We're seeing all these reports of reproductive harm in vaccinated individuals, of deaths in vaccinated individuals. Even I was reading a various report the other day of, and this was so sad, but a, a breastfeeding baby developed uh, a severe blood clotting disorder, very much like the ones that we're seeing in individuals who are vaccinated and and died. So there there is, you know, this sense of like we're dealing with this thing and it's frightening and it's causing these very severe, you know, bleeding issues. And now I've been exposed to this person. I have this bleeding issue. I had this miscarriage and therefore the two must be connected. I, I see why people would do that, but I don't think that that's a biologically tenable mechanism just because there, there simply isn't uh, sufficient time for the person to, to have the exposure, their body to react to the exposure, the, the, the baby to die, and then the natural miscarriage to happen in between when people are reporting, I've been exposed to vaccinated individuals, and now I'm having a miscarriage. I think that makes complete sense. I mean, and like you said, in, in terms of like trying to explain a miscarriage or the reason, or at least finding some sort of reason or meaning behind it would it is absolutely part of that grief process. So I guess my my question is, you know, you're talking about the individuals that are saying, you know, this happened within a weekend or or something like that. So so that time frame and your explanation of that makes complete sense to me. I think some of the other reports that I've also seen are like phlebotomists or nurses or doctors who are spending like a massive quantity of time around these vac vaccinated individuals, you know, 12 hour shifts again and again. They didn't have any any symptoms for weeks and then, you know, these individuals that they're working with that are vaccinated, they go and get their second dose and a couple weeks go by. And then they, these unvaccinated individuals that are working in these these environments are starting to see these, you know, massive blood clots or, or other issues that they're experiencing. So what about the individuals that are reporting or at least the anecdotal reports that are saying, you know, I've spent six, eight, ten weeks around these people and then my symptoms kind of started. And is there is there any possibility, I guess, that these people are are actually having these kind of impacts? It's very difficult for me to speak to that because I'm not seeing those reports. I would want to see like exactly what's being said by the individual, what what other confounding factors, you know, are are going on here. You know, in terms of, of miscarriages of people and in, in, in environments like that, I suspect that there is potentially a tenable link between mask wearing and miscarriage 
because of the oxygen deprivation that's going on. But this is something that's very difficult to, to demonstrate because, of course, there's no studies being done on this kind of thing. But in terms of people developing blood clots after after working for extended periods of time with vaccinated people, I, I haven't been seeing that in that. I'm sure it's out there, but that's just not something that I've I've had a chance to look into. So it's not something I want to like publicly say one way or the other. I think it's tenable. I think it's not. But I can say that that folks who are sort of positing that, well, you know, there's there's some some of the spike protein is getting from vaccinated individuals to unvaccinated individuals. I don't think that's a reasonable mechanism for anything that that might be observed. And Again, it's like really hard for me to kind of comment on on this particular phenomenon because I'm not sure how often it's happening and I'm not sure what the reports look like and I'm not sure what the confounding factors might be. Because that's one of my main concerns about all these reports is that there are many confounding factors that might be contributing to the kinds of things that we're seeing and those things are not being reported. And then also just the numbers, like we don't actually have real numbers on how how much this is going on. With the VAERS tracking system and the yellow card system in the UK, we have a lot of ability to, to at least say, you know, even if, if this isn't quote unquote verified by, by, you know, some independent organization as being causally related to the vaccine, we at least have a way to track these numbers. But I haven't seen at this point any anything that's really tracking this in terms of total numbers. I've just seen people throwing out, you know, hundreds or thousands or hundreds of thousands. So if you had some stuff on that, I would totally love if you kick it my way and I could I could send you another extremely long email. We'd love that. Yeah. Obviously, you know, some of the things that I've read are what you kind of mentioned where they're like Instagram stories or, you know, like responses to social media posts, which I'm like, you're not going to get somebody's full background story or, you know, do they have history of miscarriage or, you know, just different things like that. So there's obviously individual stories and their and their bio individuality is is going to be something that is important to some of these reports and kind of understanding so I I get that and I understand obviously that you know these are just simply people responding quickly to something that's quite small and kind of making that connection so but I will definitely send it your way it was going to ask or ask you to elaborate on a little bit further, Pamela, was you you mentioned in passing kind of in answering this last question that it it may not be plausible or it might not be very founded that people are shedding these spike proteins. And I know that 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 idea that these spike proteins are being shed is really causing a lot of fear and mayhem in a lot of people, a lot of us, I'll, I'll say, since we just don't know, I, I've been overly cautious and, you know, a little bit fearful about this. I know I mentioned it to my husband the other day and he just looked at me and he said, I just want this to be over. I thought it was almost done. Now there's this. And so it's definitely causing a lot of fear in those of us who weren't afraid before, right? So can you maybe explain a little bit further or in a little bit more detail why it's unlikely or, you know, just give some of us who are maybe a little trepidatious about the idea of spike protein shedding a little bit of, of understanding of what's really going on. You know, I, I will say for sure that the spike protein is, there's re- research coming out, and this is a, a whole other like can of worms, but it's, it's, it's causing pathology itself. So the spike protein is effectively toxic to our body cells, even without viral entry into the cells. 
So this really raises the question of like, now we're turning our bodies into spike protein factories as we're being vaccinated. You know, what are going to be the long-term health consequences for people who are receiving this vaccine because of the tremendous dose of spike proteins that they're going to be receiving? And so people are reading these things, which I think are, are based in legitimate you know, clinical studies. And then they're saying, oh my goodness, if this spike protein is somehow getting out of the body of the vaccinated person, this is, this is going to affect me. And, you know, this is going to be something that, that I'm, I'm going to have to deal with. And so it's kind of based, I think, on the idea that since a protein is a small particle and a virus is a small particle and a pheromone is a small particle, and we know that viruses and pheromones can be transmitted you know, in this way, therefore proteins can be transmitted this way too. And that's really just not particularly biologically tenable for a couple of reasons. So the proteins are an extremely large molecule and they're very sticky. They, they tend not to, they just don't transmit very well. You're not, you're not like, you know, worried about somebody breathing on you and getting their proteins all over you. If they have some sort of genetic disease where they produce the wrong kind of proteins in their body, you know, in, in massive amounts of, you know, throughout the course of their life. I mean, this is just not something that we observe in nature. There are certain diseases that are non-communicable or they're communicable in very specific ways, you know, so you have to be exposed to the actual tissue um, in which the, the non-functioning proteins are present. And so I, I'm familiar with this. My sister worked in a, a vet pathology lab and they had to test samples of sheep for scrapies. And scrapies is what's called a prion disease. And so this is where a, a badly folded protein basically goes around bumping into normal proteins and folds them badly as well. And this doesn't sound like that catastrophic until you realize that the shape of a protein is necessary to its function. And if you misfold it, it can no longer perform its natural function. And so, you know, as my advisor in college used to say, you know, one misfolded protein, it's not really a very big deal. It'll sort of go off in a corner and be defective by itself. But if you have a misfolded protein that can go around and start misfolding other proteins, you have a serious problem and you have a prion disease. And so one of the more common prion diseases that most people have heard of is mad cow disease. And people know that it's pretty serious and it's pretty dangerous and that you kind of go nuts because, you know, it's actually attacking your brain tissue. And scrapies is the equivalent in sheep. And so, you know, my sister's working in this lab with these samples that they're testing for scrapies. And she's got to be very careful to avoid direct contact with the tissue, because if it does actually have scrapies in it, then it could communicate, you know, via the, the raw, you know, cut open tissue. But she, you know, there's no concern about it being aerosolized or you know, being left on surfaces per se or things like that, because there's a couple of things that are, that are, you know, going on here. The proteins are not really leaving the tissue in which they reside in the same way that, you know, viruses will leave the body. Also, most proteins, so other than prions, they're not alive. <laughs> you know, they're not going to get into your body and make more copies of themselves and, and sort of take over like a virus would. I think that was the other point I was trying to make. So, so unless you specifically have a protein that is, that is a prion, or, and behaves like a prion, you, if you get a little protein on you, you know, your body is going to be like, oh, that's not me. And your immune system is going to take care of it. Or you're going to, it's not even going to cross your skin or it's, you know, going to get broken down in your digestive system. Cause any of the ways that this would enter your body, you know, if it enters through your mouth, it's going to get digested. If it, if it gets somebody coughs on you and it gets on your skin, it's not going to get past the barrier of your skin because the barrier of your skin actually blocks a lot of things. Anyway, the viruses can't get past the barrier of your skin. You know, your, the viruses has to come in through your airway or, or your mucous membranes in your eyes or something like that. 
like we don't we don't normally get infections this way. So sort of walking around thinking that that there's this tiny invisible particle that can magically defy all of the laws of biology and chemistry is a little untenable, I, I think. And I, there's been a lot of magical thinking with coronavirus. You know, it, I'm sure you're aware of the examples of like, you know, if you go into a restaurant, the coronavirus can't infect you if you're sitting. So you can sit at your table without your mask and eat, but it can infect you if you're standing. And that's why you have to wear a mask as you walk to your table. I mean, some of these things are just very silly, but but we've been so conditioned to sort of accepting these silly things that I think we're just sort of like, oh, somebody said there's this invisible thing that could possibly be harming me and I, I need to be, I, I can't see it and I can't verify it and I kind of need to be worried about it. And so that that feeds into this whole thing too. And it was interesting that you mentioned that your husband was like, I thought we were done with this. <laughs> you know, and now there's this other thing. And it it is very reminiscent of the original coronavirus scare. You know, now that we've all been exposed to vaccinated people for the last three, four months, now we're worried about possibly having some kind of strange biological effect from them. But the the other primary reason that protein shedding is just not really tenable with with the spike protein in particular is that the spike protein is actually displayed on the surface of the cells. So generally speaking, you, you're not going to be having a lot of like free spike protein just floating around in your system. It's going to actually be attached to your cells. So you have to posit that you're shedding cells and that these cells are somehow getting into the body of another person. And again, this is not something that we observe with other kinds of diseases that we know are not communicable, you know, where a person might have problems in their proteins or a person might have problems with their cells. So if the spike protein behaves in this way, it would it would behave in a completely novel way based on you know, all of the proteins that we've observed up to this point. And then even if it could behave in that way, in order to have a sufficiently high dose, because this is the other thing that I think a lot of people don't understand about about proteins is that, and, and even viruses, you know, so this is why the asymptomatic transmission was never particularly convincing to me, you know, because you have to have a sufficient load of viral particles in order to be actually experiencing symptoms of a disease and, and in order to actually be contagious. You know, so we know that there are time periods where we're not contagious. There are time periods where we are contagious and we, we don't know it because we're, you know, about to develop symptoms. But there are times when we're, we're not contagious, even though we have symptoms. And there are viral particles present in your body and you can be not contagious if the viral particle, if the viral load is below sort of a certain threshold level. So you have to have enough particles for there to be a response in your body, but you also have to have enough particles for, you know, something that you sneeze out to be infectious to somebody else. Because some, you know, the other person who's getting sneezed on, their immune system can handle a virus particle or two or 10 or probably even several hundred without really batting an eye. And that person will never become sick. And so even if the spike protein could shed or the cells that are displaying the spike protein could shed, the, the minuscule amount of them that you would be exposed to especially for these people who are reporting, well, I just was kind of, I just went to the grocery store. I was just sitting on a plane or I was just, you know, it's not like they're living and, and working and, and breathing and sharing the same airspace with, with vaccinated individuals. They simply would not be receiving a sufficient dose of the spike protein for it to have any, any meaningful biological effect. That makes a ton of sense. I was actually um, talking to another family member about that in terms of if shedding was a real thing, if there was tertiary shedding would be possible and how that would work. So you, you've already answered all of those concerns that we kind of had in that area. So thanks. Uh, definitely helping assuage a lot of our concerns and fears and hopefully a lot of, if any of our listeners have some of those similar fears or concerns, helping to bring some 
you know, science-backed understanding to this, because I think that that's really important. It's just like you said, this is mirroring somewhat of the concern and fear that we have, you know, just keep seeing with COVID. It's, oh, we're okay for a few days. Oh, nope. Things are terrible and we're all going to die again. It's so important that we all look at the facts on all the sides, right? It's easy to become worried or get get really concerned about, oh, the new thing is shedding or whatever it may be. It kind of seems to line up with, okay, well, I'm anti-vaccine. I'm, I'm not really worried about COVID, all these things. But it's important after that initial scare to then say, okay, let me go find the research. Let me go find the science behind it before we just go crazy, just like the initial two weeks to flatten the curve becoming however many days it's been now, you know, we don't want to become just the flip side of the coronavirus response and have everybody in this state of fear because that's that's going to cause a lot of problems that we're already seeing in terms of giving up our freedoms. And it's just, it, it's not a healthy place to be, that fear. So I, I'm really glad that you can help our listeners kind of understand and have that that factual science-based backing, real science, not the Fauci science. Yeah. And, you know, as you're talking about, you know, the fear and the and the concerns and things like that, one of one of the things that really stood out to me about this whole vaccine shedding scare is is the potential that this has to completely divide families that are already suffering from serious division. And and I saw this play out in real life in a, in a really profound way. I was at a pro-life conference last, actually about two months ago now, and and I had my book on the table there, and, and there were people who were sort of filtering past, you know, for the for two days and wanting to know, know, you know, sort of where I stood on vaccination, and many of them would it was not quite fair. They'd be like, well, so so what do you think about the vaccine? And I'm like, why do I have to tell you first? Like, I can't leave. <laughs> I'm stuck at this table. <laughs> you should at least, you know, <laughs> put forward your opinion first. And then I can be like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but anyway, these people were coming by and they were, they were, and it was, it was remarkable how many individuals stopped and said to me, I refuse to get vaccinated, but my husband is vaccinated and it's like damaging my marriage. I refuse to get vaccinated, but my whole family is vaccinated and now I can't see them anymore. You know, I, I'm refusing to get vaccinated, but my parents are vaccinated and, you know, they they won't let me come near them. You know, the number of people that came by my table in the course of two days at that conference was 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 astounding. And this, I think, is one of the, the things that we actually really need to worry about in light of the whole context of the coronavirus situation is the potential that this has to divide families and to divide communities in really fundamental ways that are that are just really unhealthy but also really contrary to the nature of what it means to be human it's not in any way shape or form ordered to to be at serious odds with your spouse over something this fundamental you know and what my primary concern with the shedding you know, and, and this people not being able to look into this or not knowing how to look into this or just kind of like running with the, well, these doctors said this and now I'm scared is, you know, this this just opens the door to, to further and deeper divisions within the family unit itself. Like this is I mean, this is a hallmark of of all of the ideologies that, you know, as people who are pro-life, as people of faith, as, you know, Catholics as as Christians that we oppose. You know, this is this is the the hallmark. It's destroy the family, destroy the family, destroy the family, and and so that I found that very 
disconcerting kind of how that was coming together. And then to, to just find the paucity of evidence that I found, you know, that, you know, certainly there's a lot of things we don't know about this vaccine. And there's a lot of reason to be concerned that really we should be keeping an eye on X, Y, or Z, you know, phenomenon. And, you know, really we should be paying attention if people are experiencing blood clots after working in hospitals, you know, the potential that this has to just really further the the fragmentation, particularly of the family is is really both both telling and kind of, I don't want to say alarming because I don't, I don't like to be alarmist. I think that's not helpful, but it's it's definitely gives me pause. Yeah, and I think, like you said, it's just one of those things that it's since it's so division, you know, so dividing, and it's so so far reaching that that is it's I don't know it's it's heartbreaking to watch, and you know that you know that it's not this isn't the first time in the last year and couple months, you know, when this all started the lockdowns and mask mandates and everything. We're also doing the same kind of division amongst families. And here we are again. And all of it just seems so much, so much. So just a plan of the enemy. Like you said, you know, that this is, this is ultimately what they want. They want to destroy families. And and this is exactly what the enemy wants to do. I also keep coming back to one of the conversations that Maddie and I have had is that I'm like, you know, ultimately, especially, you know, with me being 12 weeks pregnant and, and the conversations I've had with my husband is I'm like, he knew, he knew that we were going to be pregnant during this time. He knew all of this and that ultimately I'm thankful for the knowledge that you've shared. I'm thankful for all of the knowledge that's coming out and the information that's being shared by, by individuals. But ultimately it does come down to taking in this information, praying over it, and then trusting that the Lord is going to take care of us because we're his children. I did appreciate somebody sent in an email earlier that I read this morning that my two cents mean less now that there's such an inflation happening. <laughs> yeah. My five cents, my 10 cents, yeah. my $2. <laughs> I don't know. We need, to, we need to update this. We do. We do. My two cents doesn't mean as much, but is there anything else, Maddie, that you would want to ask or Pamela that you would want to add as we're kind of nearing the end of our time? I love Pamela. I know that there are a lot of, I don't want to call them conspiracy theories, but there's a lot of fear mongering, so to speak, even on, on the opposite side, on people who aren't afraid of COVID, who they're not wearing masks, they're not pro lockdown, but they're, they're still worried or spreading the idea that, oh, if you, you know, get tested with the, the test that has to go all the way up into your nose, something's going to cross into your blood brain barrier and you're actually going to get infected by doing it. Or, you know, there's a microchip in the testing kits or, you know, these, these things that don't even really seem plausible somewhat, but somebody ran with them and, and now they're kind of little seeds of fear and doubt that some people have in their mind. So are there any things like, like the ones that I just mentioned or any other ones maybe that you know of that you can kind of put to rest, so to speak, from a scientific perspective? I could, again, go on for a really long time about the whole biotechnology thing, because my background is in is in biotechnology, you know, to a certain extent, certainly in genetic engineering. That's that's what I've been interested in for the past, you know, 20 years. So I've been aware of this, you know, a lot longer than the average person. And I've been aware for a very long time that there are a lot of things that are proposed or posited, or even that, you know, a lot of funding and time is thrown at that simply do not work. So most of the stories that I've seen about biotechnology kinds of things and there there being some kind of 
chip in the vaccine or there being some kind of nanobots in the vaccine or things like that those are those are all wildly untenable and they're they're basing the stories on something that is true you know so for example you know there there's these tiny little star-shaped metal things that that have been designed to forget the exact name of them but they've been designed to deliver drugs to particular parts of the digestive system and so people took that image and and this is it's it's really it's based on thermokinetics i mean the things can sort of clamp and release based on heat in your body <laughs> like it has it has nothing to do with any kind of computer programming or chip or a artificial intelligence or anything like that it's literally just based on these things will flex open at a certain temperature and flex closed at a different temperature these the somebody took a picture of these things said that these things are on the nasal swab and that they're going to somehow like alter, you know, tr be implanted in your body indefinitely and, and track your every movement kind of thing. That's just not, not what's happening here. I mean, there's, there's sufficient, you know, cause for alarm from a physiological level. There's, there's cause for alarm, you know, in terms of tracking, but, but we need to like focus on the things that are actually alarming, like the vaccine passports. You know, that's, that's something that, that really is being pushed and really is being developed and really could be done, you know, implanting some some kind of microchip in your body that's going to like send and transmit the signals and turn you into this mindless automaton, which is literally what some people are proposing, is is so far outside the realm of possibility that it's it's not even funny. I've seen a lot of people talk about luciferase and, and that somehow this this means that, you know, the vaccine is the mark of the beast or something like that. Luciferase is a is a protein that fireflies produce. It's it's why they glow. <laughs> so there's a there's a substance called luciferin and an enzyme called luciferase and and luciferase breaks down the luciferin and it causes the fireflies to glow. And this is a, a reporting system that's used in many different laboratory tests to see if if you actually have produced the results that you intended to produce. And so if you get the the protein turns on and you get a glow, you know, okay, I did it did what I wanted to do. If you don't get the glow, it didn't do what I wanted it to do. So this is something that's been used again in biotechnology for decades that nobody, it's no, never bothered anybody. Nobody's ever raised a sink about it. But now people are saying, oh, you know, luciferase is associated with these vaccines, which is actually not, certainly not at least, you know, in the vaccines themselves. Although there there may be some point, I haven't looked, you know, in, in that level of detail with the protocols because I've mostly been looking for aborted fetal cell lines and not for the use of luciferase. So it's possible that at some point in some step of the production, you know, one of these vaccines could have used the protein luciferase as, or luciferase as a reporter gene, but it's not a sign of the end times and it's not in the final vaccine composition anyway. I, I've seen things about hydrogels, which are which are, you know, actually do actually exist and they can be injected under the skin and help monitor things like oxygen content or blood glucose levels or something like that. But you literally have to have a sensor, you know, that is that is either I don't know if it's strapped to your skin or actually inserted into your skin directly above the hydrogel in order to monitor you know what's going on in that local part of your body, and you would you would notice if the sensor was on you. It's it's like two two or three centimeters long. You know this is not something that you could sort of covertly be injected with, and then somehow this is now you know sending transmissions back to Big Brother or creating some kind of EMF radiation in you or something like that. That's that's not what it does at all. So yeah, there's there's a lot of really really absurdly crazy stuff 
floating around. And you specifically mentioned like the nasal swabs and something going across the blood brain barrier. You know, there's a very simple explanation for why that can't happen. It's because your skull is in the way. <laughs> there, you, you have, you know, bone there that is, is separating your nasal cavity from your brain. If you didn't, any infection that, you know, got in your body could like potentially cross the blood brain barrier if it was able to do that and, and cause severe problems. You know, and again, this is based on some things that are actually true. You know, the lipid nanoparticles contain polyethylene glycol, which is used in lipid formulations to get these things delivered across the blood-brain barrier. And the spike protein itself, there's pretty sound evidence coming out that it can cross the blood-brain barrier. But you can't posit that since something can cross the blood-brain barrier, if I stick it in a, a cavity of my body where there's literally bone in between the cavity and the blood-brain barrier, that somehow this thing is going to go straight across the blood-brain barrier and kill me. It has to go to a completely other part of your body and and start there. And you know, if it's if it's enclosed in these lipid nanoparticles, you know, the idea that it could somehow pass all the way through all the tissues to get back around and up to your brain before it would fuse with another cell and and you know empty its genetic information into that cell is um not really biologically plausible. So I just covered like, you know, massive, massive ground on conspiracy theory there. <laughs> Hopefully that didn't just sound like word salad. No, that was great. I think that's really, really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for kind of adding that voice of reason and some of that scientific background to this so that people can actually understand it, right? We need that education. Yeah. Knowledge is power. We can't just go around saying, oh, this is happening. This is happening. You know, we should have caution if we don't understand what's going on. That's okay. But we we should then quickly work to, as best we can, it's hard nowadays, right? With Google and the mainstream media, you know, kind of hiding all of the the real facts. But as best we can, we should try to educate ourselves because that's you know, that's how we dispel the fear. That's how we move forward. That's how we become advocates in our community is by educating ourselves and then helping others. You know, CRISPR was initially discovered in 1987, but the function wasn't really elucidated until 2007. And at that point, people were like, oh, hey, you know, this thing is going to allow us to produce designer babies and we're going to be able to just like genetically modify the living daylights out of everything. And, you know, there was a lot of hype. And if you had followed the hype, you know, you would have been really worried about the the ethics of this thing and the potential for harm of this thing and and, and just, you know, all, all of these possibilities. But it turns out that, that CRISPR is a very messy at gene editing. It's extremely messy. And there were actually two two human babies that were modified using CRISPR. And this happened over in China within the last couple of years. And they tried to modify them to give them a gene that would allow them to be HIV resistant. So this is just one gene. And they found that these poor children are now mosaics. So the, the CRISPR protein actually or put the gene in places it was supposed to go and, and didn't put it in other places it was supposed to go. And I think probably also put it in places it wasn't supposed to go because we simply cannot you 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 cannot at will control the level of of activity of a molecule it depends on those things like reaction kinetics and how much of the molecule is present and where it's present and so sometimes it'll work and sometimes it won't and you know people just sort of posit that like as soon as you know somebody says that DARPA is working on a project that 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 it's real and it's happening and and therefore we need to be afraid of this thing and i i'm sorry to have to inform you know, those who are not as familiar with how the military works or how biotechnology works or how molecules work, that most of the things just don't work. 
you know, the, the, the rule of thumb that my PI gave me in the laboratory was, you know, if you're having a good day, about one in 10 experiments will work. I think that number is slower with these, these biotechnology, sci-fi kind of advanced techniques, but, but at a minimum, you know, apply that rule of maybe one in 10 of these things that DARPA proposes will actually work and probably more like one in 20 or one in a hundred. And they're going to be the things that are less sci-fi sounding, not more sci-fi sounding. I agree with that. I love that. I really appreciate appreciate that insight as well. I think we're pretty close to our time and I don't want to keep you too long, Pamela. So, but if there's anything else that like maybe we missed that you're like, I really want to make sure that your listeners understand that. I mentioned earlier about anecdotes, you know, being, you know, not necessarily, you know, not something we should ignore, but not necessarily something we should put, you know, all of our, all the eggs in that basket. But, you know, I have some, some, you know, positive anecdotes that I can share from my own experience, my own, my own situation. You know, I live in a, in, in a duplex apartment and my landlord lives on the other side and my landlord is fully vaccinated and I'm doing just fine. No, no blood clotting problems, no cycle issues, nothing. I have several friends who, you know, have been around vaccinated persons, you know, one whose who's in-laws are vaccinated, one who just, you know, the routine trips to the store, constant exposure, just environmentally, one just successfully delivered her baby, the other is, you know, I think 12 weeks pregnant and doing just fine. You know, my, my closest friend, her husband is in and out of the houses of vaccinated individuals all the time. He's not having problems. She's not having problems. Their kids aren't having problems. You know, so, so what I'm seeing is, you know, the people that I'm, that I'm exposed to who have exposure to vaccinated individuals, myself included. I mean, I'm, I'm sharing the same airspace as my landlord. I'm touching the same surfaces, you know, passing in and out of uh, the, the shared basement storage laundry area, usually multiple times a day because my landlord is retired and I work from home, touching the same doorknob that we have, a you know, a shared entry into the building and then entries into our separate, you know, apartments. So, you know, anytime I go out the front door, I'm touching a surface that has, has been touched by somebody who's vaccinated. I would think that especially, you know, given my medical history and my susceptibility to two things that would be related to vaccine injury, that if there was a problem, you know, I'd, I'd be the canary in the coal mine kind of thing. <laughs> that is, again, just an anecdote. So, you know, don't don't place all your eggs in that basket. But as far as I can tell, the canary's not singing yet. Although the quail is definitely making up <laughs> for the same department. I appreciate that. I, I think that kind of like we've talked about multiple times, even, you know, today and I, I, just even across a lot of Ladies of Lifeside episodes that hearing both sides and hearing kind of everything that's going on helps us kind of determine what we need to do and, and um, how we need to respond to what's going on in today's society. So I really, I really value and appreciate that insight as well. Well, we'll wrap up. Thank you so much, Pamela, for being on today. And like I mentioned before, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure we'll uh, end up tapping your brain and all of the research that you're doing again. If you haven't ever subscribed to Ladies of Life Site, be sure to do that. The links are below and you can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And we'd love to have you subscribe subscribe to that as well as our email list so that you know when a new episode comes out. And um, if you have any questions for Maddie or myself or even Lisa and Claire or Pamela, I'm sure she would be willing to answer that. So just send us an email at ladies at lifesightnews.com and that email will be in the description as well. So thank you so much. God bless you all and we will see you guys next time. Bye.